In 2017, a California farmer and agronomist teamed up with a Stanford MBA student to form Gold Leaf Farming. In six short years, the company has acquired 27 farms covering 12,000 acres, growing mostly almonds and pistachios. Other large kind of farm business groups, I think, are a little more pure real estate play. Goldie takes the opposite approach. We want to farm for the long term, so we only want to get good at a couple crops, uh, and we want to then do the work ourselves rather than being a, a third-party landlord. That's Goldleaf's Director of Asset Management, Sawyer Clark. Their approach to farming these acres themselves requires patient capital, top talent, and the ability to know when ag technology works and when it doesn't. Especially with aerial imagery and some other stuff, we will actually see, like, oh, that tree is more stressed than this tree, or, you know, but, but we, we don't have the tools to respond at a per tree level. Most of our tools are at a per block level, and a block might be 50, 100, 150, 200 acres. Today, we'll explore Goldleaf's business model, why they transition so much land to organic, and how they look at talent and technology in farming. What we're trying to do is, is find the best people, pay them way better than average, and then do hard things to create more food with fewer resources and to generate good returns for our investment partners. Goldleaf Farming's Sawyer Clark on today's Future of Agriculture podcast. Hello, fellow Agner. Thank you so much for joining me for another episode of the Future of Agriculture. My name is Tim Hamrich, and every week you and I get to hear from the founders, farmers, innovators, and investors, the people shaping the future of the ag industry. Now, before we dive in, I want to thank our quarterly presenting sponsor, which is a company that tells you what you don't want to know. Every three seconds, FarmWave's Harvest Vision system is counting your harvest losses off the header and from the combine and reporting them to you in the cab in real time. Make changes on the fly and watch your loss counts drop without having to stop or do manual harvest loss counts again. Models are currently available in corn and soybeans with several other crops in development for release soon. But don't take my word for it. Listen to an actual FarmWave customer. The system came to me about a week after we had started doing soybeans. I had about 300 acres already through the machine at this point, our combine. And we got into that field and started going and the system started showing you got loss out the back. The The fan was set maybe just a little bit too too fast. It was We went from non-irrigated beans to irrigated beans, so the yield was a little higher. I changed one millimeter on the, the sieve and slowed the fan down 50 RPMs. That immediately changed about four bushel back into the tank. And that small little change, it changed everything. You know, I don't know how long I would have run in that field had I not had that and gone, I need to make a change. Join the ranks of farmers deploying Harvest Vision in their fields to ensure no bushel gets left behind. Put AI to work on your farm. Just visit farmwave.io to chat with one of their experts or locate a dealer near you. Thank you so much to FarmWave for supporting farm innovation and the Future of Agriculture podcast. All right, now back to today's episode with Goldleaf Farming's Sawyer Clark. Goldleaf was founded back in 2017 by Brandon Ribeiro and Jack McCarthy. Uh, Sawyer met Jack while they were both in business school together at Stanford, and he soon became part of the early team. In today's episode, Sawyer and I are going to talk about Goldleaf's model for investing into farming and farmland, their decision to specialize into just a few permanent crops, how they add value to their acquisitions, including transitioning to organic, hiring top talent and embracing technology. And we have a lengthy discussion about ag tech, specifically the types of technology that has worked and not worked for their operations. 
Sawyer describes himself as a farm kid from Oregon's Willamette Valley, where his family continues to grow hazelnuts to this day. He spends his time at Goldleaf split between acquiring new properties and leading operational initiatives with the farm team, especially those regarding the company's sustainability practices. Before joining Goldleaf, Sawyer served as an intelligence officer in the U.S. Army, bootstrapped and joined a couple of startups, and completed a short stint in a family investment office. Sawyer received an MBA and a master's in environment and resources from Stanford. I'll drop into the conversation here where Sawyer's talking about his farm background in Oregon and what ultimately led him to joining Goldleaf Farming. The short background on me is as a farm kid from Oregon, growing up on a blueberry and hazelnut farm, and we did cattle and goats and just kind of the traditional family farm up there. And uh, never thought I'd be farming again, but uh, met the founders of Goldleaf, uh, Jack and Brandon, who you know, as I was going through business school and thought, oh, maybe maybe I should take a look at farming. And for the last five years then, I've been um, part of Goldleaf and um, I've been a part of the organization as we've grown from three farms when I started to 27 now. So um, been a lot of, a lot of change over that time, but a good experience so far. And what were you doing before business school? Uh, mostly I was an intelligence officer in the army. In undergrad, I studied political science and Arabic and was going to go, you know, be a CIA or a FBI kind of guy, be a spook. Uh, So did uh, Army intelligence after college. And uh, after three years of that, I fulfilled my commitment and then um, had the opportunity to intern with a a family office in Seattle, Washington, of all places. I I didn't even know what a family office was. Turns out that's like a family or an individual who has some... Uh, financial resources that they want to manage personally, as opposed to having a, you know, a stock picker or somebody else do it. And so they, they basically just took a chance on me and gave me an opportunity to see how business goes a little bit through them. And then through that, went to business school and then met the founders of Goldleaf like three months into business school, basically, and have been all, all Goldleaf since then. I love it. Yeah. And I think that's a great place too to, to kind of introduce Goldleaf Farming here. So I guess I would love to introduce it in this lens. When, when a group of MBAs say, we want to go into farming and we want to do it kind of our way, what is different about that? You know, what, how does that look in practice? Well, first of all, when a group of MBAs says they want to go into farming, they usually mean ag tech. So they don't actually mean ag. They mean they want to like apply Google machine learning to an ag problem. And I think we'll get, maybe we'll get to some ag tech stuff in a little bit, but typically that's, that's what that means. I remember being at business school talking about like, you know, there's a food and ag club. And so a lot of the food and ag club was a food club. And there was like five people in ag and like three of them were doing ag tech. And there was like two of us that were like, no, we actually want to like operate farms and produce food. So it's pretty uncommon. I think like the gold leaf approach or like, you know, so Jack was the investor in MBA and Brandon Ribeiro, you know, grew up farming almonds, multi-generational, had farmed with other big investment groups before. Got a, you know, had been a PCA for a while and pomology, did kind of the the almond track, you know, his whole life. So they came together and said, hey, let's, let's combine investing with almond operating and agronomy experience. And that's really what started the foundation of Goldleaf. And then it was, okay, that's the start. So from the MBA perspective, the business perspective, it's what are the types of farms we want to own? including what crops. At the time, it started with almonds. We now farm pistachios and dates as well. So we, we do long, hard looks at things like macro trends for consumption and supply. We do long, hard looks at you know resource conservation and water use and organic 
or not. So we, we kind of, we do a lot of supply and demand stuff. And I think, you know, most of the community that we interact with is, is our farmers and our neighbors. And that's because most of our company is farmers. Just for context, there's about 85 gold leaf full-time employees and probably 75 of them right now are harvesting almonds, pistachios, or dates. Like by far, most of our team is actually operating. There's only a few of us that are kind of management, accounting, HR. So we interact with the world mostly as farmers. But the farms we've selected and the crops we've selected and the areas that we want to farm in are the result of looking at supply and demand across the whole world, which crops, especially our developing countries, eating more and more of. Um, which crops are constrained by climate, uh, water, and soil, which crops do we think we can learn how to farm well or we know how to farm well, and then we go we go start farming them. Or we'll, we'll go buy a small farm or start trying to get smarter and smarter and figure out, is this something we want to do? Whereas other you know large kind of farm business groups, I think, are a little more uh, pure real estate play or their kind of thesis is we want to own American farmland in general. And as long as we have a, a good tenant on it who can pay us rent, you know, that's that's what we want to be. We basically want to be a landlord of farming assets. Goldleaf takes the opposite approach is we want to farm for the long term. So we only want to get good at a couple crops uh, and we want to then do the work ourselves rather than being a, a third party landlord. And what why is that last part important? Doing the work yourselves as opposed to, you know, there's lots of custom uh harvesters, custom I mean everything, custom everything out there. Or, like you said, the approach of just being a landlord, but you all really choose to kind of create that farming core competency. And what's what's the reason for that? Yeah, so we do we have some custom harvesters. Like there are some places where we just don't have enough acreage to make sense to have our own fleet of harvest equipment, for example. Uh, that's pretty much the only thing we outsource. We'll, you know, we'll we'll uh, hire somebody to fly on a spray if we can't get in the field. But basically, everything else we do ourselves, and we do that because you know, one of our values is to act like an owner. And like we just we say that we tell people we believe it, and and we've got to act like it. If we're acting like owners on our farms, that means when it's you know the alert goes off that it's going to frost at three a.m. on a Sunday, we want our team to hustle out there. And to turn the irrigation on, not because if they don't, they get fired, but because they're invested in the farms and, and they take pride in it. And if we were a, a kind of an absentee landlord or a contract farmer, or we hired contract farmers, that expectation, you know, maybe, maybe I'm sure there are some great custom farmers who would do that and who have that pride, but we don't have as much ability to respond quickly. And the other thing is we, you know, we've got, like I said, 85-ish people what we're trying to do is is find the best people, pay them way better than average, and then do hard things to create more food with fewer resources and to generate good returns for our investment partners. So that means if we actually want to fulfill that circle, we've got to be hiring and training and challenging and motivating and, and uh, all those things. It'd be hard to, to do hard things like organic conversions or or switching irrigation systems to be more efficient or responding to frost. If we've got to email somebody who's got a sales department who might get back to us quickly. So we, we really want to own that whole cycle so we can push the envelope. 
And it, I mean, that requires, you know, that your model requires some pretty patient capital, I would think, on the part of the investors. Um, are these, you know, your old colleagues in family offices or, you know, who, who are the investors that are going to say, look, we see this long term bet and, and we're willing to go on this journey with you? Yeah, it, mostly family offices, like you said, it's basically family offices, high net worth individuals and some, you know, pensions, endowments, etc. And that's exactly for what you just said. You know, our, our model is we're going to buy something that we believe in and we're going to farm it for 20 years and we're going to farm it with our people. We're going to try to increase efficiencies. We're going to add technology. We're going to apply various sustainability things, you know, like organic or cover crops or, you know, pollinator habitat, whatever. And we know that that will take many years to have a good payback. We're not in the business of, of you know, flipping or planting orchards to sell them to the next guy or gal. Um, so we need capital partners who who understand that and who are interested as well. So our, our typical investor looks at us a lot like a, a multifamily housing deal. Like if, you know, they think of gold leaf as similar to owning an apartment complex in terms of the returns. It's a it's a real estate asset that over the long term, you know, there's cash flow generated. So that's that's the partners we look for and that's the partners who are most excited about what we're doing. Um, people who are more constrained by the fund cycle, who want a five-year exit and return all capital. That's not really what we're set up for. Um, but the people who say, I believe in this long-term thesis, I, th- I think what these guys are doing are, uh, is exciting to me. Like, those, are the, those are the investors who, who are most excited about what we're trying to build. Yeah. And I imagine with those investors, I mean, you, you've got to, you know, tell the story of your analysis on the demand side, which you already talked about, you know, supply and demand globally, where developing countries kind of buying these types of products for the, for their foods, for their diets. But I, you also got to look at the supply side too, I would imagine on crops like these, especially almonds and pistachios, I know nothing about dates, but you can educate me. Uh, you're pretty much constrained to California and maybe a little bit of Arizona. Both states have big time water issues. California for sure has uh, big time regulation risk as well. How are you doing that analysis to decide like, okay, this is a worthwhile investment, not just because of the demand, but because we can manage the risks on the supply side? Yeah, yeah, that's exactly right. My numbers may be a year or two old, but you know, generally the world market of almonds, about 85, 80, 85% of those come from California. For pistachios, it's something like 40%. So it's you know the biggest player, but pistachios are a little more fragmented than almonds. But almonds, the whole, you know, the whole market is the Central Valley of California, almost, plus some Australia, plus some Spain and Portugal, a few other pockets. And dates is a way, way smaller industry. Um, some in California, some Arizona, some Mexico, some Tunisia, Israel, Middle East. So th- those are a little more fragmented. But when we, when we look at water, water is definitely a constraint. You know, for all three of the crops I just mentioned, uh, you need a special climate, generally described as Mediterranean. Dates are a little more deserty, but generally you need a Mediterranean climate. You need Decent soils, pistachios can take a wider variety than almonds, but you need like a loam, like a healthy sandy loam, not too, not too clay soils. Uh, and you need, you need water. And, you know, all crops take water. So like no surprise, uh, but water availability in the summer in a Mediterranean climate, there's a very s- small parts of the world that do that. And California is one of them, partially because of all the investment there has been for generations into the, the water system of California. So when we're looking at a farm in California or Arizona, we have to look very locally because um, the headlines about California running out of water generally may be true, 
but it really varies even you know this side of the road versus that side of the road and that's because of the the legal boundaries the aquifer subbasin boundaries and the water district boundaries that have been overlaid and built you know for for hundreds of years what that means is you could have i'm, I'm going to pick fresno for example just fresno county which is a, a you know big county big uh, food producing county in california there are some parts of that county that have some of the best water in the state. They have tremendous access to surface water, which means they're not using much groundwater, which means the groundwater is healthy. The surface water is available every year. It's very affordable, so you can grow a wide variety of crops. So it generally, it's a very good spot. Uh, legally, the water's there. You know, Sustainability-wise, you're not sucking anything dry, and it's a great, great place to farm for the long term. But if you, you know, walk 100 feet and you're outside that district boundary in a different part of the same county, situation could be very different. The farm across the street could have um, no access to service water, have wells that are in rough shape, um, and paying a lot of money to pump those wells. And so we've got to look farm by farm and say, is this a farm where 20 years from now, we think it's going to have what I term as physical, legal, and ethical access to water. Now, physical and legal are more easier to determine. The ethical, we've got to kind of gut check ourselves on and say, that's really more of a question of like, Am I going to be proud to tell my kids that we farm this in 20 years? And uh, we've just got to look each other in the eye and assuming the legal and physical pan out, like that's, that's a question that we've got to be comfortable with before we purchase a given farm. Right. Right. Yeah. No, I think that's a, it's, it's cool to hear that that is part of the thought process just because something is legal doesn't necessarily mean it's ethical and that you really have to, as you said, do, you know, kind of gut check yourselves on that. Uh, especially considering how, you know, you guys are, Pretty substantial in size. Uh, if I remember from talking to Brandon, you've been around since 2017. And are you, what, 12,000 acres now? Or where, where are you at currently? Yep, 12,000 acres. And uh, that's about 50-50 almonds and pistachios. Um, and then actually going back to crop selection, we have 33 acres of dates. And so, you know, some people guys like, you, you have 12,000 acres and 33 of them are dates. Like, what? Like. What, what are you guys doing? Well, that's that's a crop we looked at the macro of, the supply and demand said, hey, we don't know this crop yet, but I think it looks like it might be a good one for us. So let's try to get smart on it. So we bought a small date farm and have operated it for, for years and are slowly getting smart, learning a lot of things the hard way, but uh, slowly getting smart. And then most of our pistachios are, are immature. So we've got about four, you know, maybe 6,000 acres of pistachios total. And about 4,500 of those are about to produce, right? They're, they're young. They're under sixth leaf. So as far as terms of harvest, like right now, we're, we're harvesting a lot more almonds right now uh, than pistachios. That's cool. And, and I imagine so, you know, you're working alongside these investors and we already talked about how patient that capital needs to be, especially considering, you know, something like almonds. It's not a secret that the economics of almonds have been in a bit of a, a rough patch the last few years. Um, so they definitely have to be patient. But I imagine you guys are also thinking about how do we add value? And and it, from the outside looking in, I would guess it's probably one of two ways. It would, it's probably in, in operations, getting really, really efficient with operations. And then secondly, it's in some of the sustainability stuff you talked about. And I understand you've, you've looked at transitioning some acres to or organic. Uh, talk about that decision and what you're seeing there as far as going organic with mature orchards. Yeah, I mean, you're exactly right, especially in almonds. And it's been I don't know, maybe entering our third year now of the worst almond price in 30 years. I mean, it's like at the, you know, if you adjust for inflation, it's 
it's sustained at like the lowest levels we've seen. And in almonds, we see that pricing cycle. Part of that is because it takes about five years for an almond tree to reach maturity. So when price is high, a bunch of people plant almonds and then those trees ramp up and there's an oversupply. And so price comes down and then people get tired of almonds and they switch to other crops or they rip them out. So we're in the bottom of one of those cycles. And it's important to have patient capital when you're in a cycle like that. And that's actually one of the reasons that we don't want to do the build to sell model is on the build to sell model. And by you know build, I mean plant. If we plant and we're expected to sell in three or four years, and that is that generates the return on the money that we invested, we're totally dependent on the value of that that sale in year three or four. And if the market's good or bad, like that can really weigh in the outcome. So we have the value of time. We're like we're we're farming for the average price over twenty years, rather than hoping that in four years we'll hit a we'll hit a high spot in the market. But your question was on value add. So, yeah, we we've converted uh, the majority of our mature almonds to organic. Our dates we converted to organic after buying them. Also, we're converting organic pistachios. Also, why do we do that? Um, that kind of goes back to the circle of uh, find the best people, pay them way above average, and do hard things to generate a better return. So one of those doing hard things is converting to organic. Converting to organic in our crops, especially almonds, is tough. Um, almonds are a lot of pest pressure, mostly navel orange worm. But the, the biggest challenge is the orchard floor management. So the weeds just get out of hand. You know, if you have a Mediterranean climate and you irrigate it in the summer, like, well, you're going to get a lot of weeds. And so we get a ton of weeds and um, almonds are harvested off the orchard floor. Typically, you don't need to have, you know, a skating rink, but you need to have most of uh, the, the orchard floor clean so that you can brush and, you know, sweep into a windrow the almonds. And if you have too much thatch or grass or weeds, the nuts will get stuck and you won't get the harvest or you'll have so much material in your harvester that your processors will get mad at you. So the big challenge we control, the second biggest challenge is nutrition. So a normal almond grower, pistachio grower takes soil samples and tissue samples and, and, you know, the spring and fall and says, oh, your trees are deficient on potassium and deficient on nitrogen. So you have your PCA, your, your crop advisor makes up a special blend and you put it in the irrigation lines and you give the trees exactly what they need and it's available to them. And you've kind of, that you've given them nutrients they need. In organic, there are some fertilizers you can use like that, um, that can be injected through um, the irrigation lines, but they're very expensive. So that's one option. The other option is compost, which is also very expensive. And then there's some smaller options of uh, other organic matters, of you know, even like mushroom compost we've heard of, or um, biochar, some other additives and things you can do. But all of those things take time to break down and become available to the trees. So when we shift to organic farming, we have to shift our nutrition program for the orchard to multi-years and saying, hey, we're going to spread compost this year. We know only 30% of it is going to be available to the trees. And the next year, it's like 17%. And the following year, another 9%. And it's kind of this long tail of nutrition. So it's a multi-year investment to get the trees what they need. So it really, you you kind of go from sprint farming each spring of like, oh, pest, all right, spray. Or, oh, you know, low on a certain fertilizer or nutrient, add fertilizer. Oh, bad weeds, spray. You go from that, which is conventional farming, to, all right, we need to put compost out every winter and let it sink in slowly. And we're building this whole system. We need to stay on top of the weeds with mechanical weed control or with weed mats or with burners, because if they get big, we can't catch up. 
And with pests, we have to do mating disruption because we can't spray. Like, so there are all these things that kind of become a long, slow game versus a quick sprint. And if you can do all that well, you get higher price per pound. So, you know, for almonds, the organic almonds sell for 80 to 100% more than conventional. So if there's a $2 conventional almond, it maybe sell for $4, four fifteen dollars a pound organic. You know, so we do hard things. We think it's better for the environment. It's better for our team. And hopefully, uh, you know, we believe it'll be better for the bottom line also. Well, yeah, I, I imagine, you know, with your guys' approach to farming in general, definitely looking at it, you know, in a data-driven way and, and kind of from fresh eyes, right? Like you, you are coming into new ground for you all as far as uh, taking over an orchard. You probably are able to look at technology from an open mind as well, especially when you're covering so many acres. Let, let's talk about technology for a little bit here. Uh, maybe a good place to start is is uh, what type of technology do you embrace at Goldleaf that maybe some of your neighbors might not be embracing yet? Yeah, I think um, so. A couple uh, kind of have like the tech that works and maybe is embrace, you know, and the tech that we'd be like, oh, we wish it would work or we haven't seen a solution for or is a nice idea, but we couldn't get done. So we use a lot of soil and weather monitoring. I think that's pretty common. Uh, there's a ton of soil moisture monitors. Um, we've tried a variety of them. And are you know have kind of since standardized um, what we use there for weather. We have both like weather stations, and then we also have some pheromone disruption, which is a, a pest protection, organic pest protection, which is also quite good. That has weather stations on it. Weather monitoring is important, and uh, we use a lot of it. It's also relatively inexpensive compared to other things we do. But like, I wish I could tell you if we're going to have a frost in February in the northern end of the valley. Like that kind of tech would be really valuable. You know, last year, most of the Central Valley north of like Modesto got hit with a crazy frost and uh, it just wiped out walnuts and almonds and all sorts of stuff that were in bloom. And it was so cold that there was nothing we could do. Like it was, even if you irrigated, you did all the right things, it was just too cold. It's like, that's going to happen sometimes, but we don't really have a look ahead at that. So some like long-term weather or, you know, believable climate stuff would, would be helpful. Right now we have precise, but, you know, very short, short, you know, forecast uh, that we can use. We use some aerial imagery that that can be good to see like if parts of the orchard are stressed or not with like NVD, or I always mess up the acronym. NDVI. NDVI. Thank you. I get that in NVIDIA, the big like graphics card company mixed up. So there's um, some companies that do that from satellites or planes, which can be useful. Those are a little delayed though. So like if you're using them for irrigation, management, which we do, you kind of get like a week look back and you get, you know, once a month or a handful of pictures a year. So it can be good to see like over time, what is changing. It's not really that we haven't found it to be useful for like, how am I going to irrigate this week? It just, it's a little slower loop, but you could look at year over year progress in the orchard. So that's useful, but not useful in like the weekly. That's more useful in the monthly or the yearly. Things like flow meters um, are really useful for irrigation, the combination of soil moisture monitoring and actual like flow meters, either on your wells or your surface water connections can help you see if you have leaks, uh, if they're not obvious, um, but also make sure that you're not using any more water than you need. You know, we talked a little bit about water diligence, but assuming that we're comfortable with water on a farm and we acquire a farm and start farming it, then it's all about using, you know, as little water as possible to create as much food as possible. 
both because we want to make sure the water is still there in 25 years, but also because the water is not cheap. Uh, water is one of our biggest expenses everywhere. So from you know the business perspective, aligns with the like steward the natural resources perspective there. And so we want to make sure that our you know the trees are getting just what they need and not a tiny bit more. And so knowing what this what you're seeing from the soil and then what your you know pipes are showing in terms of flow is really important. Some of the things that uh, don't work or we wish we had more of is well, we mentioned this a little bit earlier, but is off-ground harvest for almonds. That's kind of coming. I haven't dug too deep in that world. We've done some trials with some of the vendors that you know you can Google and find. And I think the machines uh, are getting better and some of them are working. Some are essentially like pistachio harvesters, just kind of modified for almonds. Some are a different setup altogether. But I, my understanding is the backlog there is actually the drying process because almonds have traditionally been dried in the field. You shake the tree, the nuts fall on the ground, and then you wait until they're dry enough. Then you pick them up and take them to the processor. So if you shake the almonds right into a bin, like they do pistachios, you've got to dry that somewhere. And the processor, the almond processors aren't yet set up to dry. In walnuts or hazelnuts or even pistachios, there's there's more drying infrastructure as a part of the processing. So that's more normal. But almonds, the off-farm infrastructure is set up to not need to be dried. So I think the machinery is actually pretty good at the farmer level. It's just if we if we told a processor, hey, we're going to bring you 20 million pounds of undried almonds, they'd be like, whoa, like go put them on the airstrip, you know, for a week and then bring them in. Now, you, you should have a, a processor on and, and see if I'm right about it. I, I don't actually know, but I would, you know, coming from blueberries and, and now even hazelnuts are trying to get more and more off ground harvest. Like I'm excited about that coming to almonds. So we'll, we'll see if that comes. What about other technology that either is not there yet or it just keeps getting talked about but not really like working? <laughs> yeah, I think that it's a bit of an umbrella, but we have lots of sensors and we have lots of precision data. What we don't have is the ability to act upon that precision data. Uh, the best example of that is irrigation. There are lots of soil moisture monitoring. There's monitors you can put on the tree to see how much water the tree is pulling. All sorts of sensors we could put in the orchard to tell us literally down to the tree level, if we wanted to, like that tree needs more water, that tree is fine, that tree is stressed, that tree needs this. But our irrigation block will be a hundred acres or 200 acres. So even if I know what every tree needs, the decision I can make as a farmer or a farm manager, our foreman, our irrigators can make is turn on the whole block or don't turn on the whole block. And for our conventional farms, most of our fertility, so most of our fertilizer goes through the irrigation lines. So then you have the same the same problem there. So even if I had a sensor that told me this tree needs more potassium, this tree needs more nitrogen, this tree needs more zinc, I, I have the same decision of what is the blend I'm going to put in the whole irrigation block, and then every tree is going to get it. There's ways for innovation there. I've joked before, like what we need is like a, a big water truck that has like a a soda mixer on the back and it drive by a tree, the tree tells it like, Oh, it needs a little more of this. And it's just like spraying water and fertilizer and it can like mix in real time. Now, you know, maybe somebody's working on that. If you are, you know, send me an email, but that's like a, a redesigning of our farms because the irrigation that we're using was put in the ground 20 years ago, 30 years ago when the orchard was planted. And so that would be a, uh, even more than off ground harvest. That would be a, uh, you know, if you told someone you're going to plant a farm, don't put any irrigation lines in the ground. We're going to, you know, 
irrigate with custom blends of fertility every time with this autonomous tractor that's going to be just dropping water on each street like okay you know like you try it first right <laughs> it's cool if it'd work but it seems pretty far-fetched at this point right very much but and that's kind of like you know the straw man example to make the point that especially with aerial imagery and some other stuff we will actually see like oh that tree is more stressed than this tree or you know but but we we don't have the tools to respond at a per tree level most of our tools are at a per block level and a block might be 50 100 150 200 acres yeah well i I think let's talk about that in the context of yield prediction because i think some people would say okay what are all these yield prediction technologies doing because who cares right like i mean i'm gonna yield what i'm gonna yield and i don't know why i need to know that but i think it actually does have important ramifications of things you can do so so talk about that well um you know a few minutes ago we talked about low almond price so part of the reason there's low almond price is because in 2020 we had the biggest almond crop ever you know and then the ports all got jammed and the world got locked down and like so it was just a perfect storm of oversupply and logistical backlogs that we're still working through since then the almond crop has been smaller every year and this year we don't know yet there's lots of storms there was a wet spring like no one knows yet but it was probably going to be similar to last year or a little bit smaller but each you know, kind of late spring and summer, the USDA and a few other groups makes a prediction of what they think the crop is going to be. That prediction influences the market price immediately for the crop. Because if in June, the USDA says, hey, big crops coming, all the buyers for almonds are going to say, all right, guys, like we know you have too much crop, like we need a discount. If the USDA and others say small crop is coming, some of the buyers might lean in because they want to make sure they get some to meet their demands for export or for candy bars or for whatever. That prediction is made by people going into orchards and counting nuts and looking at trees and going up and down the state and driving around and talking to farmers. But it's it's a prediction of, you know, like a per region yield that then rolls up to a total crop. But that prediction is made by humans um, and is, you know, pretty good, but is not... Um, you know, don't don't bet the farm on on a yield prediction by any of those groups because it's it's just really hard to do. So that's like at the macro level why it matters. On the farm by farm level, if I had data in, you know, right after bloom, let's say, so you know, mid March, that hey, you've got three thousand pounds of crop, three thousand pounds per acre of crop coming versus fifteen hundred pounds of crop coming. If you told me I had three thousand pounds and, and I could believe it. I would do every, you know, bloom spray. I would do every whole split spray. I'd do every May spray. I would keep the weeds down to nothing. I would lean into irrigation if my moisture monitors were saying lean in. I'd make sure that our harvest window was extra tight because I knew I want to protect this big crop. On the other side of that, if you said, hey, you've got 1,500 pounds coming, I'd have to take a deep look. of like, well, is the third or fourth bloom spray worth it? You know, best case scenario, I'm getting 1,500 pounds. That spray costs 100 bucks an acre. I, I don't know. Or like, you know, this, the trees are going to grow vegetatively this year a lot because they don't have that many nuts. Should we change our nu- nutrient mix or just lean out because they're not using all the nutrients we gave them last year? So there's a lot of um, kind of in the season changes we could make uh, if we had a reliable uh, yield prediction for later that year. Yeah, it makes a lot of sense, especially with the cost of inputs uh, being so high. It makes a ton of sense. Uh, what about, are, are you guys using like, uh, 
those gust sprayers or anything like that? Or even, I, I guess maybe a better question is, if you're organic, does it make sense to have a gust sprayer? Are there even orchard sprays that are organic that you would run through, something like that? Yes and yes. We do have a couple gust sprayers. They are useful and organic. So the gust sprayers we have are the tree sprayers. I, I think they're working on a, a weed sprayer, but we have the tree sprayers. And um, there are foliar sprays that we do in organic. You know, they're like oils and uh, like vegetable oils or other oils for mites and um, some micronutrients for the trees. They're all organic certified. So we do even organic almonds or organic pistachios. We basically do the same number of tree sprays. It's just a different set of materials we can use. So we'll still do may sprays. We'll still do bloom sprays. We'll still do whole split sprays. We can't use all the conventional stuff that everyone uses. We have to go find uh, similar chemicals and or um, compounds. And, and of course, they cost more, right? So that's part of the organic thing. But um, I think generally the autonomous vehicles, so includes Gus or Monarch, or I think there are other technology providers who are working on basically add-ons to tractors that will drive them autonomously. So you don't need to buy a new tractor. You just need to like kind of give it a, a brain. We'll, we'll head that way. And that's why we got some Gus's. And that's why we're trying some of the other ones. And our, our data isn't perfect yet of like, here's what we're going to do. One of the things, though, that is coming clearer to me is that the things to automate are the things with lots of versatility or you need to use a lot. And like that may be like, oh, great. Good job, Sawyer. Like genius statement, like the things you do all the time, automate. But what I mean by that is if you only disc your orchard once a year, don't get an autonomous disc because the rest of the year it's going to sit there. So then it's like, okay, what are the things we do a lot? And so in organic, we mow a lot. We can't spray, so we mow a lot. So an autonomous mower, certainly organic, is worth way more than an autonomous weed sprayer in organic because we can't even use an autonomous weed sprayer. So we're trying to figure out like what are the, the tractor movements or the passes that make sense to automate and we do a lot, and what are those that either work for conventional, not organic, or in our crops, we just don't have enough of those events in a given year to make that equipment worth it. There are other crops. One of the one of the farm managers I get to work with um, spent a long time growing grapes, and he he'd spray like twelve times a year in the summer or something like grapes, just an absurd amount. And and he can't believe how few sprays he does now as an organic almond grower. So in a crop like that, you might want an autonomous sprayer, either weed sprayer or crop sprayer. Um, so it's really we'll continue to noodle on those things and figure out what's the right setup. Um, we think there are savings to be had there, especially if we can hire A plus people and have them run a couple autonomous machines versus having a you know lower skill requirement but bigger groups of people um but we we don't have that that fully answered just yet sorry thanks for this interview appreciate it yeah thanks Dan. it was a pleasure to be here hopefully some of that was interesting to somebody um but it's always fun to share what we're up to all right well i definitely think that was interesting to a lot of people out there i know it was interesting to me so i hope you enjoyed that as much as i did uh you can go learn more about what they're doing over at gold leaf farming uh, by just going to their website which is goldleaf.ag of course as always i will put a link for that in the show notes to today's episode i also want to thank farmwave for being our quarterly presenting sponsor this quarter go learn more about them at farmwave.io and last but certainly not least Thank you for your time and your attention. I never take it lightly. It means a whole bunch to me. I'll be back next week with another story of ag innovation. Ag innovation.